0: Today,
1: uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the advent of the Jim Crow system uh, in the South uh, uh, and also the Plessy v. Ferguson case, which I assume you have all heard of. Now, it's fair to say that the case of Plessy v. Ferguson, decided in 1896 and which we read about for today, uh, was, uh, along with the Dred Scott case, which we talked about earlier in the course, uh, the worst Supreme Court decision in American history both in its actual legal reasoning and its substantive policy implications. Plessy represented a new low for the Supreme Court uh, and uh, for the country as a whole. Uh, Legally, it represented a new low by turning the social fashions of the moment, of the time, into the law, by confusing the two, confusing social practices and the law. They are different. Uh, it helped usher in an era in legal jurisprudence in which unelected courts began to attempt to make public policy, instead of just deciding the legal questions that were brought before it. And what is worse, the Supreme Court began uh, basing uh, those public policy pronouncements not on the actual words of the Constitution as they were written, but on the Supreme Court's view of the, uh, their underlying philosophy, their unspoken meaning. Thus, the Supreme Court could hold, in effect, in the E.C. Knight decision, which uh, was handed down just a year before Plessy and which we talked about earlier, that the Constitution provided for a system of free market capitalism, despite, of course, the Constitution's silence on that issue, because the justices of the Supreme Court and Knight assumed that is what the founders meant That is what the document meant, with really no proof. They couldn't point to anything specific in the Constitution that said America had to be a capitalist country, but the justices in the Knight case just knew this somehow and read it into the Constitution instead of taking the meaning out of the Constitution, out of the actual language of the Constitution. And in the Plessy v. Ferguson case, the Supreme Court did much the same thing, finding a justification in the general spirit of the Constitution for legalized segregation, when the actual language of the document obviously said no such thing. Thanks to decisions like Plessy v. Ferguson, justices of the Supreme Court even today feel that they are able to base their rulings not on the words of the law itself or the words of the Constitution itself, but on general principles, emanations, implications, which sometimes for better, sometimes for worse, they feel are implicit in the Constitution or implicit in the law or, most dangerous of all, implicit in the way we are as a society, the way things are. And it's through this last type of reasoning that the Supreme Court in Plessy v. Ferguson could uphold segregation under the Constitution because, as they viewed it, blacks and whites are naturally separate. And the Supreme Court could rule that the law gave sanction to this idea of segregation, even though it is embodied or expressed nowhere in the Constitution itself. And, of course, now turning to the Plessy case not as a piece of legal reasoning, but as a public policy document, right thing, wrong thing, it is obviously, or it was obviously, disastrous public policy. It reflected perfectly the North's post-1877 decision to leave the South alone, to uh, settle its racial problems on its own, in its own way. And of course, this meant by the 1890s a policy of legal segregation in the South, what is known as Jim Crow, a policy that allowed the South to remain frozen in time, racially and economically as well, until the 1960s. In fact, it's no coincidence that the South began to grow economically, to come out of its almost century-long period of financial and commercial stagnation that I talked about uh, in an earlier lecture, only after the 1960s civil rights movement opened up Southern society politically. Only through a society uh, uh, that was reasonably open, Uh, uh, both racially open and socially open, in which people with talent could expect to be rewarded for their talents and not held back because of their race or origin. Only under these circumstances could the South begin to grow economically. And the last 30 years of substantial economic growth uh, in the South uh, is an example of how politics affects economics and vice versa. And in the specific case of the South, how racial politics affects economic growth. But in 1896, the Supreme Court, by refusing to press the issue of racial equality with the South, uh, gave the South the out it needed to avoid dealing with the issue of equality and racial equality for another 60 or 70 years. And during that period doomed the South to generations of political and economic isolation and stagnation. So, while the South, the white South at least, viewed the Plessy v. Ferguson case as a great victory, it really was a terrible defeat for the South. The worst possible outcome For a region struggling with the implications of military defeat, civil war has only only been done with uh, for 30 years, Uh, 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 economic marginalization, which I talked about, uh, as well as with the constraints of the lost cause mentality, uh, 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 in which Southerners who fought for white supremacy were almost elevated to mythic status uh, uh, in the South after the war, Plessy v. Ferguson ensured that the Civil War would not end in the South until at least the 1960s, and perhaps that it would never end. Now, by the time the Supreme Court was presented with the Plessy v. Ferguson case in 1896, the 14th Amendment's meaning and reach had already been whittled down by the court considerably. As we've already seen and discussed, the slaughterhouse cases of 1873, uh, uh, in those cases, the Supreme Court held that the 14th Amendment only protected a limited class of federal rights, uh, most of which had nothing to do with civil rights, and cut down the impact of the 14th Amendment, especially in terms of racial equality, considerably. Then, in 1876, the Cruikshank case, which we've also read about, uh, the Supreme Court held that the 14th Amendment did not protect against violations of civil rights by private individuals like the Ku Klux Klan, only against state or state-sponsored violations of civil rights, furthering, further narrowing the 14th Amendment scope. And finally, in the 1883 civil rights cases, the Supreme Court struck down the 1875 Civil Rights Act, which had prohibited discrimination in public accommodations, hotels, restaurants, railroads, streetcars, things of that nature, as impinging on private social transactions between blacks and whites, uh, uh, an area private area where the Supreme Court ruled in these civil rights cases, neither the law nor the Constitution had the right to go. In other words, who you are friends with, basically, is what the Supreme Court is saying. You cannot you cannot force someone to be friends with another person. That's what they were basically saying in these civil rights cases. Once again, in the civil rights cases, as the court had done in the Cruikshank case that I talked about a second ago, It limited the 14th Amendment scope to state action and not individual action. And this is where the law stood in 1896 when a man named Homer Plessy, uh, who had been denied entry to a whites-only car on a Louisiana railroad line pursuant to a uh, state law mandating quote-unquote separate but equal public accommodations, uh, Plessy sued under the 14th Amendment, claiming that his rights to equal protection of the laws had been violated. Now, ironically, Homer Plessy was seven-eighths white, but still had been denied access to the white car. Uh, uh, a matter that the Supreme Court did not rule on in the Plessy case, but left to Louisiana state law to decide. State law would decide who was black and who was white for the purposes of this law. Now, here in Plessy, unlike the civil rights cases and the Cruikshank case, there was no question of state intervention here, because a state law was what Plessy was, was suing against. Now, the questions presented to the Supreme Court uh, 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 in Plessy uh, were essentially these. First, what kind of equality was Plessy asking for? He said that he had been denied equal protection of the laws under the 14th Amendment. He had been denied equality under the 14th Amendment. Well, what kind of equality was he asking for? And the second question, did the 14th Amendment protect this kind of equality. Now, the majority opinion of the court, which I know it was written, uh, we should know it was written by a northerner, not a southerner. Uh, Justice Brown was a northerner. He was from Michigan. Uh, the majority opinion of the court in Plessy asked, uh, answered the first question in this way. It said that Plessy's claim was for a form of social equality, not legal equality, into an area again, uh, as we see in the civil rights cases, that the 14th Amendment could not reach. Legal segregation was, the court, Supreme Court ruled, just a codification of the kinds of distinctions made freely by private individuals, involving the kinds of freedom of association that individuals are and always have been permitted to engage in in a free democratic society. You can't force someone to be somebody else's friend. The 14th Amendment, wrote the Supreme Court in Plessy, quote, could not have been intended to abolish distinctions based upon color or to enforce social as distinguished from political equality. Since the court ruled the law in question, the Louisiana separate but equal law, merely reflected social prejudices, these could not be overcome through judicial legislation. Now, this, of course, would become one of the major arguments of Southern segregationists in the 20th century, especially during the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, when they argued that laws could not change people's minds and hearts. If the two races are to meet upon terms of social equality, the majority opinion in the Plessy court said... It must be the result of natural affinities, a mutual appreciation of each other's merits, and a voluntary consent of individuals. If one race be inferior socially, the Constitution of the United States cannot put them on the same plane. The majority opinion then went on to assume that it was natural for the two races to be separated, taking a social arrangement and an involuntary one at that, and giving it the status of a law of nature, almost like the idea that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, a natural law that we can't do anything about. And the court disingenuously argued here that the separation of the races, quote, do not necessarily imply the inferiority of one to the other. Separate public accommodations then were still equal ones under the Constitution. And social equality was outside the purview of the 14th Amendment. But was Homer Plessy asking for social equality? No, said Justice John Harlan in his dissenting opinion in the Plessy case. According to Harlan, Plessy was asking for a different kind of equality, legal equality, political equality, his civil rights, not personal rights, civil rights, the very kinds of rights, the very type of equality that the 14th Amendment was drafted to protect from violation by the states. Now Harlan understood, uh, even if the majority of the Supreme Court did not, that the 14th Amendment created a series of national citizenship rights which mandated colorblind treatment under the law. Whatever private individuals would do in their private behavior. And that this case, according to Harlan, was about public life, public accommodations, and public issues, not what the court majority called the social realm. The arbitrary separation of citizens on the basis of race, Harlan wrote in his dissent, while they are on a public highway is a badge of servitude. Here, Harlan also invoked the 13th Amendment prohibiting slavery. He said, it was wholly inconsistent with the civil freedom and equality before the law established by the Constitution. What would be next, Harlan asked rhetorically and sarcastically. A law separating Protestants and Catholics on state railroads? Separate public accommodations, Harlan argued, could never be equal. Their separateness themselves was their inequality. And by stigmatizing blacks with separateness, they created and reinforced feelings of inferiority and inequality under the law among blacks that would have ongoing consequences in the political and social life of the nation as a whole. And of course, we're going to be hearing more about John Marshall Harlan from, uh, from Patrick. Where are you, Patrick? Are you here? It's not good. <laughs> he was down to do the, uh, uh, he was down to do the uh, report today. Well, you heard a little about John Marshall Harlan, at least you heard from me, and maybe you can hear a little more at the end. Now, Harlan and the majority in Plessy uh, then disagreed about what was public and about what was private, what was legal equality and what was social equality, and ultimately, over the reach of national citizenship rights and national power to prescribe discriminatory actions, both by states and by private individuals disagreements that would not be finally resolved uh, 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 in favor of Justice Harlan, as we know, until the 1954 Brown v. Board of Education decision, which held separate but uh, equal public accommodations in education unconstitutional, and the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which applied the 14th Amendment specifically to private interference with a broadly defined series of national citizenship rights that clearly prescribed the kind of discrimination that the majority in the Plessy case had permitted. And in fact, went far beyond even this, prohibiting actions that were much more private uh, in nature than even Justice Harlan may have uh, uh, contemplated. Now, to to hear more about that, you'll have to take my 20th century uh, U.S. history course, because it's about the 1960s but what would the response of the black community be in the 1890s to the Plessy decision and to Jim Crow generally? Well, we've read the two basic responses for today Uh, in the public statements of the two great black leaders of the day, uh, Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois, two great Uh, philosophical and uh, uh, political and personal rivals, who offered two sharply contrasting prescriptions for coping with the legacy and implications of the Plessy case and Jim Crow. And we've heard uh, uh, about uh, Booker T. Washington from Greg, uh, and also a little about uh, W.E.B. Du Bois. We read more for today. Now, at the time of the Plessy decision, Booker T. Washington was the most famous black man in the nation. He was a lot more famous than W.E.B. Du Bois, who I think is more famous today. Uh, and Washington was a special favorite of the white community in both the South and the North. Washington, as as we heard in Greg's report, had been born a slave, worked his way up the ladder of success with tremendously dogged was a very, very determined man, almost grimly determined Uh, eventually becoming president of a pioneering black educational institution, the Tuskegee Institute, which he used as a platform for his views on American race relations. In 1895, as the Plessy case was winding its way up the ladder to the uh, Supreme Court through the federal courts, uh, Booker T. Washington was asked to speak at a trade fair sponsored by a group of Southern businesses. Uh, what might be called, uh, as we saw in my previous lecture, New South businesses uh, in Atlanta. His speech, which has gone on to become known as the Atlanta Exposition Address, uh, established Washington, at least in white circles, as the official spokesman for America's black citizens, mainly because he told whites what they wanted to hear. Although Washington was personally troubled by Jim Crow and would be troubled also by the Plessy case, uh, he chose not to confront it directly. uh, And he placed the issue of political equality and legal equality, not to mention social equality, on the back burner, so to speak, instead advocating a program of economic self-sufficiency and economic self-help for African-Americans, learning skilled trades, working farms, starting small businesses, uh, entering the professions, all within a segregated black society. Washington reasoned that once blacks uh, built up economic power in their own communities, whites would be willing to give them legal and political equality. Not because whites necessarily wanted to do this, but because they had to, since, as I've said repeatedly in this course, money talks. Washington himself put it more elegantly. No race that has anything to contribute to the markets of the world, he said, is long in any degree ostracized. To Washington, politics in the context of the 1890s was almost beside the point for the black community. Economics mattered much more. As Washington said in his Atlanta Exposition speech of 1895, the opportunity to earn a dollar in a factory just now is worth infinitely more than the opportunity to spend a dollar in an opera house. While this philosophy, not surprisingly, was wildly popular uh, uh, in the white community, Booker T. Washington did not adopt it for white benefit. He believed that black economic self-help within a segregated black community held the promise of enormous black power in the future power that ironically and almost paradoxically Washington felt would be negated if blacks blended into the white community socially. In other words if there was integration. Now Washington in many respects I've always believed was a forerunner of black nationalism. Although not many observers today seem to realize this. In his belief in a strong black economic base able to use its economic muscle to accomplish its political and social goals. And In this way, I'm sure that he would have approved of Martin Luther King's use of black economic power in the form of successful boycotts in Montgomery, Alabama in 1955 and 1956 when King successfully campaigned to desegregate that city's bus system, the Montgomery bus boycott, and later in 1963 in Birmingham uh, where King broke the back of the uh, Jim Crow system in the entire Uh, a downtown business district. But, of course, in the 1890s, all this lay far in the future. Booker T. Washington died in 1915. And he was clearly willing to concede the issue of black political and legal equality, and, of course, social social equality in his lifetime. Booker T. Washington's rival, W.E.B. Du Bois, however, was not... Du Bois, in many ways, was everything that Booker T. Washington might have wished he could have been. Du Bois was born to a free black family. He was raised in relative material comfort in western Massachusetts. Du Bois earned a Ph.D. from Harvard and studied abroad in Germany with the eminent sociologist Max Weber before beginning an academic career uh, 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 that was quickly short-circuited Uh, largely because of his race. The patrician Du Bois uh, cannot be easily characterized, since in his almost century-long life, he was, at times, an integrationist. Uh, He helped found the NAACP in 1909. He was a black nationalist. Uh, He expatriated to Africa late in his life and died in Ghana in 1963. And he was a Marxist, uh, during the 1930s, he was a Marxist when he uh, wrote the book *Black Reconstruction*. And I talked about uh, Du Bois's view of, uh, of of reconstruction. He was also uh, what we might even call today an elitist uh, in his call for what he called the talented tenth—a black intellectual upper class to lead uh, the entire community. And of course, uh, Du Bois would have been part of that talented tenth. He was talking about himself. But one thing that was consistent about W.E.B. Du Bois throughout his entire life was his insistence on equal political, legal, and social rights for blacks. And this, of course, brought him into conflict with Booker T. Washington, as well as with the Supreme Court's Plessy v. Ferguson decision. In large part, in fact, the primary goal of the NAACP, which Du Bois helped found, was to obtain a reversal of the Plessy decision. And an end to all aspects of Jim Crow. To Du Bois, two things were most important to blacks in America: the right to vote, and the right to a higher education, as opposed to the liberal, uh, to the uh, industrial or trade education. Uh, uh, that Booker T. Washington called for. In other words, uh, Tuskegee was not a liberal arts institution. Uh, 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 Washington uh, disdained those kinds of institutions for blacks. He thought they were impractical. impractical. Uh, Du Bois uh, argued exactly the opposite. In other words, Du Bois would have approved of a school like Lawrence. That's, that's the kind of school he wanted African-Americans to go to. Uh, he wanted them to go to places like Lawrence, go to places like Harvard. You know, he, he went to Harvard. That's, you know, that's, that's where the split, I think, philosophically uh, uh, came between Washington and Du Bois. Now, all, f- all forms of education for African-Americans, higher liberal arts education and also industrial and trade education were, uh, 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 were endangered by the Plessy decision. Now, to to Du Bois, the Plessy case had another pernicious effect on blacks, something that Justice Harlan had alluded to in his dissenting opinion. And that was this sense of inferiority, of apartness that legalized segregation uh, imparted to African Americans. Du Bois argued that Plessy not only uh, 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 had to go, uh, not only uh, because it legalized voting restrictions and the whole edifice of Jim Crow, uh, 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 and of course, this was unjust, uh, uh, and not only because they violated the 14th Amendment, but also because they had this devastating effect on the black sense of self and black identity. Much more so than uh, Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois had a sense of black identity and black culture. You know, he... he wrote in the section, uh, 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 that uh, the that that selection that we re- read for today, which comes from the famous Du Bois book, The Souls of Black Folk. Uh, he wrote that people would ask him in so many words, how does it feel to be a problem? Now, Du Bois' response to this, aside from the obvious the feeling of being insulted, was to argue that America, white America, would not permit him to be himself both a black man and an American, without being forced to choose between the two. In Du Bois's words, uh, uh, referring to blacks, he does not wish to Africanize America, because America has too much to teach the world in Africa. He does not wish to bleach his Negro blood in a flood of white Americanism, for he believes that Negro blood has yet a message for the world. He simply wishes to make it possible for a man to be both Negro and American without being cursed and spit upon by his fellows, without losing the opportunity of self-development. And it may have been for this reason, above all, that Du Bois demanded black political, legal, and social equality, not sometime in the future, but right away. Because without this equality and the feelings of inferiority that went along with legalized segregation, blacks would be denied the chance that every other American group had to decide who they were and what they wanted to be, without others deciding this for them, to essentially be themselves and be Americans at the same time. Plessy did many bad things, but in Du Bois's mind, the worst thing it may have done was this. It made it impossible for him to be himself. And that's why Du Bois fought the Plessy decision for the rest of his life. Now, Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois have gone into history and through history uh, as a pair. And historians have spent a great deal of time uh, comparing the two, asking which man's philosophy, which man's response to the Plessy case was a better one. It's fair to say that, in general, Du Bois has fared much better with historians, especially more recent historians uh, who link Du Bois to both uh, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X as part of the mainstream of black political activism and thought while consigning Booker T. Washington, on the other hand, to a sort of backwater, uh, sometimes even referring to him as an Uncle Tom. Now, I don't think it's necessary to try to resolve uh, this debate, except to say, in fairness to Booker T. Washington, that in addition to being a much more intelligent man than many historians seem to give him credit for, he didn't have a Harvard Ph.D. like W.E.B. Du Bois, but he was a very sharp mind, with a very clear vision of where he wanted the black community to go, and a much angrier man than many historians give him credit for being. Uh, In his own way, uh, I think that uh, he was every bit as angry at Jim Crow and Plessy as W.E.B. Du Bois, but bottled it up, uh, perhaps accounting for his relatively premature death. He was in his 50s. Du Bois lived to the age of 95. Washington also may have been with his emphasis on economic development, much closer to Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and for that matter, the uh, black separatist Marcus Garvey, the, uh, uh, the back-to-Africa proponent of the 1920s, uh, and maybe even Louis Farrakhan, the Nation of Islam leader, uh, than many realize. Booker T. Washington may uh, or may not have been an Uncle Tom but we can see elements of his philosophy in black leaders who were emphatically not Uncle Tom's. Now, I say all this not because uh, 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 Du Bois does not deserve praise. He obviously does deserve praise, but because he has received praise from historians, while Booker T. Washington has been sometimes, I think, unfairly caricatured. In any case, the Plessy v. Ferguson decision permitted the South to go another 60 or 70 years without confronting the question of racial equality and the meaning of the word equality in general. And it also affected the North, the Plessy case did, and its conception of racial equality, even though there was no legal segregation there, by Justice as. Justice Harlan had predicted and Du Bois had feared, stamping blacks with a badge of difference, of second-class citizenship, of inferiority, in a way that poisoned northern race relations as well. Not in the same way as in the South, of course, but just as badly in its own way. Over a century after the Plessy v. Ferguson case, and almost a half-century After its reversal, Northerners and Southerners of all races continue to live with its malign consequences.